Today for this first episode in the series, we're calling it Defining Identity, Decentralized Identity Part 1. And we have with us Ingo Rube, a key member of the Kilt Protocol, one of the founders. Ingo's expertise lies in utilizing advanced technologies to build a more secure and private digital ecosystem. His work with the Kilt Protocol, a blockchain-based protocol for issuing self-sovereign and verifiable credentials has put him at the forefront of this whole Web3 identity revolution. So let's dive right in. Ingo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. This term gets thrown around a lot, identity. What does it really mean in the context of Web2? It's evolving over the years. What's the history of identity in the early internet? What was like the first, not commercial application, but the first time as people started to use the computer and the internet? What were the first times that this came into play? Actually, I'd like to start even earlier because identity was there even without computers. Interesting finding. <laughs> so uh, I, I think identity is something that, that needs to be, uh, first of all, when you start talking about that, everyone thinks something different when you talk about identity. And there's many people we've seen on, on shows where we talk about identity. People sometimes think, yeah, this plastic cord, uh, which was given to me by the government, that's my identity. And it's always interesting to tell them, no, that's not your identity. That's a plastic card. That really makes a difference because your identity is much more than your nationality or something. Or your identity is, is who you are and is also what other people say about you. And these things are really important to understand. So identity in, in any world, if that be Web 2, Web 3 or the uh, physical world, they, they always consist of two things. And the first thing is what we call an identifier. An identifier is in the physical world something like your face or your fingerprint or your signature. These are things which you thoroughly control, right? They are not given to you by a company or a government or a blockchain. They're just there. They're yours, right? And you control them 100%. No one can switch off your face or switch off your fingerprint. This is just there. It's, it's, it's a fundamental human property, actually, that you have there. Interesting. Thinking about that brings you to decentralization very much because things can't be more decentralized than identifiers in the, in the physical world because everyone has their own. This is the best decentralization that you can find. So you have billions of identifiers it, it, only of people on the world right now. But identifier is just there to identify you. So it makes the difference between you and me so that people don't mix the two of us up. That's not enough. To have an identity, you have to add things to that. And uh, these things are called credentials or verifiable credentials. Mm. And in the physical world, that is normally plastic cards, pieces of paper, which describe things that you can do, that you have the right to do, things that you achieved and stuff like that. And they are issued by, for example, the government, when it is the plastic card which says, that you're a child friend, but it is sometimes also your university degree, which is not issued by the government, by, but by a university. This can also be your library card, which entitles you to get books for free, oh, which is issued by the public library. And here we have the second piece of decentralization in the decentralized world. So those trusted entities, government, university, library, they are not one body. They are decentralized, right? Anyone can basically start becoming an issuer of credentials. And that is the other piece of, of decentralization. And this, this concept of credentials, it works like that. So there are those trusted entities, library, and they issue a credential to you. And the fun thing about that is you own the credential, right? It's yours. You put it in your pocket. You put it in your drawers. And that makes it 
extremely powerful for you because you make the decision if you want to show it to someone and for what purpose. And this is another piece of decentralization because now we take those credentials and put them into totally decentralized wallets. And so decentralization and power to the user because they have the power to show them or not. And when I show them to someone, and he becomes the, the best part, actually, when I show my credential, say my driver's license to buy a bottle of alcohol, then I show that to the guy who works in the shop there. But the government, which issued the driver's license, will not notice, will never have a chance to find out if I bought a bottle of alcohol. So the issuer is not part of the identity transaction. And this makes it very, very private. So this is absolutely privacy preserving because it was a thing just between me and the guy in the shop and no one else. So it is very secure. It is very privacy preserving and it is already very decentralized. And now I can start answering your question. But before you <laughs> answer, before you answer the question, thank you so much. The library card is interesting because I could understand how in that situation you're giving data. Let's just say you, you use your library card and you only take out books. You live in a small town in Norway and you don't buy books on Amazon or something. You just go to your local library. And over the course of your lifetime, you've read hundreds and hundreds of books. And the books that you've read defines you. I think your family would like to have that history because it tells them who you are if you've you know passed away or something like that. Just give you an example because I just spent yesterday importing all of my book reading history from Amazon into Goodreads. And I'm thinking I've read like over 300 books or at least I bought from, from Amazon. So I've probably read more than that. And I'm importing. I'm like, wow, this is like really a historical about me that I'd like to make sure I own this data. But I don't. In the library card situation, you're like giving data back to the library. You're giving them your reading history and the driving these are your identifiers, right? It, it's not just your fingerprints and things like that. It's also your reading history. It's your driving history. I mean, that's valuable. And we didn't even get into the commercial applications of this stuff. But these things, and I know you're going to get to that, but these things are valuable. You know, driver's license, library card, all these different things that we act and do on our daily basis. So when you look at Web2 and compare that to the physical world, it is a giant step backward in history. Because in the Web2, as, as I said before, you own your credentials, you choose what to do with them. They are connected to your identifier, like your, uh, like your face or your fingerprint, because there's a picture of your face on there. So to make it secure, in the Web2, we have those centralized identity providers. They are called sometimes Facebook, sometimes Google, and there are some more. And uh, those companies basically did something which looked very, very useful because they offered a button which says log in with this identity provider. And what this button actually does is that it has your, behind that button is already your login with this service. So you have your identifier there, but your identifier is in their database, right? And not your face, it is in their database. They could switch it off any day. And then you, because of your behavior, this is what you said before, your behavioral data actually becomes also verifiable credentials. Those verifiable credentials also live in those big providers. Normally, they don't give them away, right? They, they, they use them for making money. And when you then log into the online business shop, for example, where I want to buy my bottle of alcohol, then you get into the trouble that the business shop doesn't really have a 
real customer connection to you. They're just using this proxy, which is the identity provider. And the identity provider then notices, oh, this guy is buying a bottle of whiskey. Pretty interesting. Maybe I want to sell this data to his insurance company, yeah. or maybe I just want to use it for advertising and uh, send him alcohol adverts all the time. So that's, uh, that, that's their decision, but you have not been part of it, right? And if I log into a new service, then the identity provider discusses with this new service about me without me being even part of the transaction. So what we had before in the physical world, I was the center of transaction and I was discussing about my identity with a service provider. And what we have now is that I'm totally out of the game and there's a big company and this is discussing with the service provider about me. So this is a phenomenal difference. And this became really, really dangerous because all the data accumulates at certain points in the internet. And I got actually stripped off all my rights, which I had before. What's the value of all this data, though? Like, what are we talking about here? A lot of people don't really think that this has much value, but this is like a huge industry. Well, just take the value of the big internet companies, add them up, and then they're happy on the value. It's quite a lot. So because the value of one piece of data, like my data, is maybe not so valuable. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's worth $100 or something. I don't know. Maybe 1000 or 10000 But nothing I could actually make a living of. But if a service has $10 billion or $2 billion, $10 billion probably not $2 billion users, then if you multiply $100 with $2 billion, and it's quite a big number. And this is the value, how we calculate the value of those big companies. Normally, we calculate them by the numbers of users, the number of users they have multiplied with a small one. Before we get into Web3 and stuff like that, it's helpful to understand the difference between how identity and privacy are looked at in Europe versus how they're looked at in the U.S., and I guess the, we have to lightly talk about there's like big data, these companies that we value that we're talking that we talked about in a second. They have a lot more tighter regulations in Europe because of how it's viewed like data is more valuable or more private to the individual person. Where did that originate? I think it originated in how you look at governments in total. So, so I'd like to actually put like three regions in the world. When you have a problem, the U.S. normally says, okay, companies are going to solve that. When you go to Asia, you have a problem, then you say, the people say, yeah, the government is going to solve that. And in Europe, the feeling is more like, okay, there's a problem, then the people have to solve that. And that's, I think, the fundamental mindset difference, very, very broad speaking, right? Hopefully no one feels... No. <laughs> Uh, but, it's, uh, but, but this is this is the gen general sentiment, I think. So when uh, so the American approach is more okay. So we have to put the data somewhere. Okay, let's ask the big companies to hold it for us. We can trust them because hey, they have a commercial interest in basically making it secure. Uh, while in Asia, very often people would say, yeah, actually we have the government for that. So let them collect the data and they will make the best out of uh, out of it for the people. Uh, while in, in Europe, we very often, when we look at data, think, okay, no one should have my data. It should be mine. That's, uh, I, I think that's the, the idea about data. This is where the whole GDPR thing originated in. And yeah, I, I think it's not, uh, well, you can always discuss it, how they uh, regulated it, but regulating it is, was not such a bad idea. No, like whenever you go to Europe, actually, it's different from American because all of a sudden every website is asking me to like accept cookies and they're like consent act and things like that. 
Yeah, which uh, doesn't really help because everyone clicks on yes. So um, like, <laughs> I read a, it though. <laughs> I do read it. <laughs> yes, but uh, but this is not this is not how you actually take care. But uh, there's other ideas in there, and they have been pretty successful already. So uh, it is like so. The, one of the rules in the GDPR is that if a company has data about me, and I ask them to send me this data, they have to send it. And if I ask them to delete the data, they have to delete it. And if they don't do that, then they face extremely high fines. And this can go up to, I think, like 5% of the turnover of the company in the last year, which is massive for big companies. So the idea of making it really hard to unwantedly collect data about people is a nice idea. Of course, it now turned out that it is really very much in the favor of the big companies again, because they have all the computer scientists and whatnot to implement these things in a very nice way, while small, smaller companies have a really hard time going through their historical data and uh, and being able to delete all the data that they have about their customers and stuff like that. So it's uh, it, so it it went a little bit in the wrong way, but the idea, the general idea, was not bad. Where do the regulations help when it comes to like how they can sell that data or use it in ways that I don't know about? I'm not really fluent on GDPR. I don't know every page of it, but it goes a little bit more into the fundamentals of holding the data and not selling the data. Yeah, selling the data is, so in a way, when, when I have data about you and I sell it to someone else, then someone else has the burden of having data about you being in charge of deleting it if I ask. So that uh, it made it a little bit more complicated, but I, I'm pretty sure there's also some paragraphs about selling data. But selling data is, I think, not even the biggest problem that he, that we have here. Oh, really? It is more tracking and tracing and about using the data. And so Facebook doesn't make well, probably they also make a lot of money by selling data, but this is not their business model. Their business model is to use the data and use it for optimizing their search algorithms and then show you things which keep you longer on the Facebook side and which also enable them to play out ads which are targeted to you. They do it to sell ads, though. It's like they're trying to make money at the end of the day. So I'm just, as I'm thinking, I'm wondering what big data's pushback will be as identity moves into the decentralized world. Like, where are they going to push back on the holding of that data? But it sounds like they'll probably push back on how the data is used and sold because at the end of the day, they're looking to make their profit, these big data companies. And if like decentralized identity could put that at risk, how do you view that? I think we're not really on the right track here because selling data and using it for making money is something different. So it's not selling data. If you ask Mr. Facebook, they probably won't say, I'm not selling data. They're saying we're using data. It's using data for selling ads. Are selling selling placements of ads. So that that's that's I think that's a huge difference. Uh, selling data is is the guys who tell you, hey, I got one million email addresses. Uh, I'm I'm going to sell them to you so you can spend the guys. So th this is selling data. This is what this is definitely not allowed. Uh, but uh, you shouldn't do that. But using data is a, is a totally different thing. And uh, where they push back, they they don't really push back on the GDPR very much. So uh, the American companies were very very happy 
uh, with the uh, with the European GDPR actually because it made them bigger because it, they they could do things that the others couldn't do. So Facebook is not at all against it. Really interesting. Where we see issues is at the identity keys. So we it took a very very long time in the standardization process of decentralized identity, which we have behind us. So that this is a process which basically started 2016, 2017, and the standardization process ended only last year, 2022. So this was a very, very long and uh, only fun process. And the non-fun part especially came in by the big companies because they didn't want us to have decentralized identity because they make a lot of their power out of the identity piece. Mm. When the power, when the identity is centralized, so you have a centralized identity provider, then if you combine that with a social graph, like some companies do, you have a lot of power because you're, you're holding my digital identity and you also know who my friends are and you also hold their digital identity. This gives you such big power that you really don't want to get rid of it. So they try to basically stop the idea of the decentralized identity, and they were not successful. That's the scariest thing right there. What you just said, building relationship maps. There was a whistleblower who left Facebook in the, and I think in, in the US, we didn't really care about identity until, at least I didn't, until this happened. But I think it was election or two ago, the whistleblower found out that Cambridge Analytica was using our Facebook data for, for political advertisements. It was really scary to think that elections could really be swayed because you have basically like the data on almost every American and, you know, right here in one centralized place. Well, it's getting even worse. So uh, theoretically, if uh, Facebook wouldn't like you and uh, you had your whole digital identity behind them, you log in with WhatsApp, you log in with all the other services um, and they don't like you anymore, they can switch you off. And then you don't have WhatsApp anymore. You don't have anything anymore because they control the identifier. They not only control the verifiable credentials, but they also yeah. can control the core of it, which is the identifier, because it is just an entry in your database. And if they switch you off for misbehavior or whatever, then you're digitally gone, which is not nice. They're already, I think in China, they're, they're talking about like some social credit system, right? It would be something similar to that. The government yeah, can you so credit system requires a centralized identity, I would say. And the centralized identity then should be on something which is in a server. And in that case, it's probably, well, a server which is run by the government, which is more the digital side. That could be, as you explained, like the three-way, it's like let the government handle I love that analogy, by the way. I'm going to use it all the time. It's not offensive at all. It's like the perfect description of the world if you like have to explain the world to aliens right now or something like that. So we're identifying all these problems right now with centralized identity. What other problems are there? I mean, that's just Facebook, but like what, what other ones are the reasons that people are finally letting the conversation tilt into decentralized identity, which is why we're here even today? Well, I think what we, what we see right now very much is uh, that we have a lot of governments, and uh, not only in China, but also in Europe and also in the U.S., noticing that there's something where they have to take care of a bit. Because people are concerned about their identity. They're very much concerned about, in Europe, they're very much concerned about uh, having that with centralized service and big companies. Also in, in America, the government has the feeling that those things should not only be handled by big companies and uh, such a small number of big companies 
So there's so decentralized identity is the talk of the town, and basically universities, uh, government uh, meetups, uh, whatever. Everyone talks about these things. So it's moving towards decentralized identity in a way. And then you will see different ways of where you can move there. You can move in a more really decentralized way, which is America thinking of very much. Uh, and you could think it in a way which is half decentralized and half centralized and gives the government a lot more power, which is currently happening in Europe. So it's, uh, there, there's different views on the world and it's a big discussion there. Fine, but if you look at like our industry, it's filled with, so you got, you got Kilt, your, your, your protocol. I love the way you described it because I was going to ask you at some point, I said like, how long is this going to take? Is this going to be like, and what the way you're describing it is that basically you're going to see different solutions to identity, whether it be centralized identity or decentralized identity solutions on Web3. And so now we're filled with this and people will have the choice. And just like with Bitcoin and crypto, no one forced people to get involved in our industry to start building and growing and doing things for the past 10 years or whatever it is. It's been like always a choice for people. So obviously when you're building out better solutions, that give people more control over their data and forget monetizing our data. And I'm not even talking about that. It's not about that. It's about just having more control over it and the relationship mapping and the family mapping. That's really cool. There's a growing field now. There's a growing industry and we're going to explore this in our series. Tell us a little bit about Kilt and what you guys are doing and where you fit in as we like explore this journey, where Kilt fits into this growing world. At identity, when you look at blockchains and identity, I think there were a lot of really nice solutions that we have seen so far that started all off with Uport, basically. You will remember Uport was out there, I think, in 2015, 2016, and that oh, was yeah. absolutely fantastic technology, really the best thing that you could basically have. They were remarkably unsuccessful, and the reason for that was uh, that it, there was no standards about decentralized identity. The thing is that if you have something which is so common, which is so important for everyone in the end, that you can't just take a small company and they define how it works, and then everybody jumps on the train and says, exactly, thank you, Mr. Uport, that yeah. was exactly what we needed. This is not going to happen. This is why... The Decentralized Identity Foundation was founded, I think, in 2017, and it said we have to have an industry standard. It is Industry standard is a little bit like the phone number standard. If I call 001, then something, I know I'm going to end up in the U.S. This is a standard. This is what you need if you have something that everyone uses. TCP IP is another standard. HTTP, those things are standards. And if we don't have a standard like that for how to represent decentralized identity, then we're lost. So it is not a question of how fast the blockchain people move. It is a question of, of how fast the industry actually moves to, to standardize this thing so that everyone, like all the companies, not like just us, but all the others, so including uh, Microsoft and IBM, they were part of that group. There's 350 companies teamed up in the Decentralized Identity Foundation and said, in Web2, we have this big problem with identities being centralized at just a couple of companies. This has to end. We have to decentralize that. And we all agreed on that. And then it took like you know, uh, six years to actually standardize this thing and, um, and come up with a common standard where everyone says, okay, this is exactly how an identity or phone number or something looks like. And uh, that was, like, like I said, a big piece of work. 350 companies. Wow. 
align them, not easy. But now the standard is out there, and now there's a chance that we grow, right? So because the industry is just starting to jump on a standard, not on an idea of a, of a startup. So now as we have the standard and everyone says, yeah, this is how identity looks, now everyone can start building applications on top of that. And this is what, and, and what we do is basically we build the infrastructure for the applications. So what we do is we implement the standards, nothing else. It's just the standards called DIDs and verifiable credentials. They are well defined and we make an implementation. You think that AI, though, in the last year or two has like made this conversation more at the forefront now because what you're doing at the foundation? Because that's really 350 members. It's not a big discussion there because identity is not only for people. So uh, DIDs uh, are not defined as the person. This could also be an AI. It could also be a service. It could also be a device. Everything basically can have a decentralized identifier. You don't have to limit it on, well, you would even go wrong if you limit it only on person because there's so much more than persons around. I guess what I was getting at is that people, once like ChatGPT and some of these newer things came out and they're seeing how their identity and their data was being used to like monetized in a different way. Now the conversation, at least here in the US, has been a lot more about how is our data and our identity private and uh, what we do and, and things like that. And so I think it's been a, a positive for you, probably. AI is going to be one of the biggest factors for us to actually be successful, probably because uh, there, there's a lot to do in this field. And I think we will have one, one show only on AI here <laughs> um, in, in this series. In general, I think it's, it's not only AI which is pushing it. The, uh, the, it's the general sentiment that something is wrong in the Web2. And this is why we all start those Web3 activities. It's not only identity, it's also ownership. It's also, there's a lot of things which go wrong in the Web2 and which are slowly moving into Web3 solutions. And uh, there's many of them already out there. I think the first which was actually there was Filecoin probably or IPFS. That was, that was, uh, that was decentralized storage. Hey, we didn't have that before. That's Web3, right? And, and, we see the people and also not only the people out there, it's, it's also industry out there, which sees, do we really want to have all the stories that we need with one company? What if they turn bad? What if they get switched off by, by yeah. government or whatever? So why would, wouldn't it be better to actually have this decentralized? For storage, you can very easily, as a, as a manager, you will see that, oh, wow, I shouldn't have everything in, on one place here. So let's decentralize that. that. That's what Filecoin solves. And then there's the problem with identity. If I, as a, a company, when I do not have direct access to my customers because there's always someone in between, this is a threat. Yeah. And then you think, okay, maybe the centralized identity is not such a great idea. And first, you probably think, oh, can I be that threat? And then you notice, well, the other threats are so big, I can't compete with them. And then you come together, 350 companies, and say, okay, we notice we cannot step into this position. We cannot be the new Facebook. No chance. We're too small. And so as we can't be it, so how can we at least decentralize it in a way that the user controls it? Because then we have direct contact to the user. And this is what decentralized identity is all about. I love that as a podcaster, but also like I love that the relationship will be mapped in the future between the, a customer, a listener, the issuer, going back to the beginning of the episode, the identity, 
it's all about, like you said, it's about bringing it out of the fog, right? It's about taking it and creating unique identifiers in a decentralized manner and creating standards for how it's all hosted and managed. But then you could you can create these these beautiful relationship maps. And I think that'll be further for really good economic purposes. We're going to go into all these different things in this series. Before we wrap up this episode, is there anything that we missed here? You want to summarize what we talked about in this episode? Well, I think what I'd like to summarize is that we need to understand that Web3 is a little bit more than NFTs. Not saying NFTs are not important. NFTs represent another thing which is missing in the Web2 which is ownership, but now we have ownership, which is repairing the Web2. But identity is a thing which has to be repaired from Web2 to Web3, uh, storage, computation, lots of other things, payment, and so on. All these things are centralized in the world that we have now or not existing. And we have to get rid of this to repair the Web as a whole, to make it a level playing field for industry to actually build great things. This is not only in the interest of the people, this is also in the interest of industry. This is where we see the movement, right? We see the movement not really coming from the people out there uh, making a demonstration out there on the street and giving me back my identity. They don't do that. We see that people in the blockchain world care very much about how to apply the cool new technology that we have at hand to solve those things because they can all be solved by blockchain. And we see now that the industry is basically jumping on this train because they see that they have better conditions in the Web3 than they had in the Web2. So this is maybe the point that I want to make. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. I'm excited to talk to you over the next couple of episodes. We're going to be discussing all the different facets of decentralized identity. We have some other guests. We'll be talking all about it. Thanks. Thank you for joining the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening.